Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer once again, doing this all by myself because my colleague, Paul Rickard, has decided to enjoy himself on a holiday in Europe. Anyway, I don't need Paul Rickard. I know he's not listening. He's probably enjoying himself, but he should be. Uh, the show today, what have we got? We've got uh, Percy Allen. Percy um, has uh, created a business called marketingtimingaustralia.com.au and we had him on the show not long ago, but he's recently changed his view on gold. Uh, gold was uh, one he actually uh, decided was big in May, and he was absolutely right. The price spiked, but now he's saying the momentum is telling him gold is on the way down, and we should be investing in the S&P 500 index in the USA. Is this a sign that things are getting better and more positive for stocks? <clears throat> Then we'll talk to the CEO of O Media, Brendan Cook. You can't go anywhere nowadays, but you see a, a billboard of some kind that's usually O Media. We'll ask Brendan how the business is going. I would have thought it was doing exceptionally well because, as, as I say, you see these signs everywhere, even in elevators. But we'll just see what Brendan has to say. Then we'll talk to Will Davison, who's the CEO of a company called Power Wrap, recently listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, and it's basically a company that should do well out of the Royal Commission because it's taking on the big banks and all those other kinds of financial uh, platforms that a lot of advisors and stockbrokers and self-managed super fund people use. That's Power Wrap. We'll be talking to um, uh, Will Davison later in the program. And finally, what a business. Uh, it's called Hammond Holdings, but no one, no one knows Hammond Holdings. But the company Scenic World, if you've ever been to the Blue Mountains and gone on the cable car there, the Skyways, and then uh, the Scenic Railway, all these fantastic rides, a great business. I think it has the biggest number of tourists in Australia going to um, Scenic World. They've recently won the contract for Bridge Climb. So this is a business that's on, on the up. And it's a family business. It's huge, but it's a family business. We'll talk to David about how his business grew, this sensational operation. My first guest on the show is Percy Allen. And Percy is the founder of markettimingaustralia.com.au. And he has this monitoring of markets and one of the signals that he watches very carefully recently turned from a buy on gold to a sell on gold. And I just want to quickly um, see what he says, uh, what this really means for markets. Percy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Was it a significant change, Percy? Well, it was for our world rotation strategies, which look at uh, purely at price momentum of different exchange-traded funds, and gold is one of them, and the others are IVV, which represents the S&P 500 share index in America, and also the um, other developed uh, market uh, markets index, uh, IVE, and also emerging markets share market index, uh, IEM. Um, 
So it looks at all four of them and, and also, of course, at cash. Uh, and what it showed, uh, it, it looks at uh, the, the price momentum of these different share and uh, bullion indexes over a nine-month period. The reason we've used nine months momentum, price momentum, is we've found that to be the sweet spot for uh, trading. Yeah. And um, on this occasion, well, really for the last two weeks, we're always wait, wait for a second week for confirmation of the signal. Um, gold uh, got trumped by IVV, which represents the Standard & Poor's 500 index. It's now ahead of it. And uh, when uh, it's like a bit of a dog or a horse race, uh, whichever e ETF has the strongest momentum, we back. Mm. And um, on this occasion, IVV, uh, the S&P 500 index, has overtaken gold bullion. Yeah, so in many ways, Percy, it's like you're trying to determine, the, the is it the weight of money from, I guess you think, smarties and insiders people who maybe once were more scared in may when you you went pro gold in the world in the world's um mm. sector and you were absolutely right i actually saw the chart that you pretty well nailed it right at the beginning and there was a, a big run up for gold but now you that weight of money is sort of telling you it's it's different from early may well, certainly on a nine-month momentum, uh, Peter, mm. it's showing that um, IVV, the S&P 500, has now got stronger mo price momentum than gold, and mm. that's, of course, being pushed by the weight of money. Um, mind you, for the Australian rotation strategy, gold is still ahead. It's still the favoured uh, ETF of the various ETFs within Australia, mm. um, the others being resources uh, and property, and finance, and gold is still in front over a nine-month price momentum uh, period for Australia. But internationally, gold has now overtaken the American, the other developed markets, and emerging markets uh, over that uh, nine-month period. Okay, one last question, Percy. Given the fact that we do play follow the leader with Wall Street you know, nine times out of ten or maybe eight times out of ten, mm -hmm. do you find that when the world gold rotation um, happens not long after the Australian one follows suit? I'd really have to check on that. Um, yeah, momentum can jump around a bit. Um, I mean, that's the problem, and it could move back to uh, gold again. Um, but for the moment, um, I think you're right, that sort of May to October period, uh, which is the graveyard for shares sometimes, yep. Uh, you know, sell in May, come back on. Uh, ledger's come back day. On, uh, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, on some ledger's day, which is in October, uh, that that period. Uh, if you go back, you know, nearly a hundred years, if you'd invested in bonds during that period, and you'd gone with the S and P five hundred outside that period from November to April, you'd actually be ahead of the S and P five hundred. I did mm. an article earlier this year on it. So this has always been a difficult period. It's the period in which crashes tend to happen where there's disruption and the markets generally start picking up after October. Now, that, that's the law of, you know, of averages. It's, mm. uh, it, that's the tendency. It isn't always so, but it is the tendency. So we are coming uh, in October to the period when um, usually the worst is over. All right, Percy, let's hope that's the case. Thanks for joining us on The Switzer yeah. Show. You're welcome. 
And that was Percy Allen, the founder of markettimingaustralia.com.au. My next guest is Brendan Cook, who's the CEO of O-Media. And they've had a few struggles on the stock market lately, but gee, I see a lot of billboards around the place. I can't get into a lift nowadays, but there's something from a company like O-Media making me read. So what's the future? What's the outlook of a company like O-Media? Brendan Cook, thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure to be here, Peter. Now, last time I saw you, um, you actually gave me a, an education on how to pronounce ooh media. Am I pronouncing it right? Oh, media. <laughs> uh, the extra O, oh, it must throw most of the, the population, surely. Well, it does a little bit, uh, but uh, um, obviously it's a play on the fact that the industry is called out of home. Yeah. So generally the industry does capital O's and H's. Yep. So that's why we have the little play on the O and the H, so that it's uh, different to how the industry is. A bit like a, beer, a company calling a beer a beer. <laughs> we're, the, we're, the, we're the same. We've called our company after the industry. Okay, explain to people who don't understand what OH, out of, out of home, means. So basically out of home is really media uh, in any area that's clearly away from your home. So whether it be the traditional billboard, but also airports, shopping centres, universities, office buildings. Elevators. Uh, bus shelters, elevators, um, uh, gyms. There's a whole range of environments that, you know, uh, are in fact now media media platforms. And, and it is a new age thing, isn't it? Like, you know, I grew up with billboards and I guess uh, inside buses and, and trains and trams and things like that, but... There wasn't the, the kind of diversity now is extraordinary. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with two things. One is technology allows um, you to do things. You take uh, elevators as an example, which have more meaning than just playing an ad. There's stock news. There's content about the building. There's a whole range of uh, other other tools that come into play. So they become true communications networks. And secondly, of course, if you take bus shows as an example, you know when I first got in the industry, there wasn't ads in bus shelters. Um, you know, you actually are, in effect, we are building, funding and maintaining and cleaning um, public infrastructure that the ratepayers don't have to pay for. Mm. So there's a lot of other values that have, have been derived over time um, and, you know, the public uh, has benefited from that. You know, as, as an industry, you know, a good, a very large portion of the uh, uh, as a percentage of the revenue we derive from advertising actually goes to local governments, state governments and federal governments. So it's a, it's a, it's a very big provider of revenue to the public. Okay. So from my point of view, you're in an industry which has had at least eyeball to eyeball enormous growth. I, I see you guys everywhere. But the market seems to... At, Various stages take a set against you, and then they love you. Have you worked out the, the rhyme and reason for that? I think we're, we're in that um, interesting cycle uh, where we're in the next stage of investment to take the medium to where, it, where it's now becoming. When I grew up, out of home was called a secondary medium. It was the first thing that an advertiser knocked off the list. Mm. Today, globally and in Australia, 
Um, it's one of the top three priority mediums that people should buy, being digital, television, and out of home. And that's why you see all the big, the fangs as an example, uh, Facebook, um, Google's, et cetera, um, Amazon's. You see them and all sorts of other digital providers now are big users of, of the medium to reach the masses, uh, exactly what you said. But we are in the moment right in an investment cycle of data and technology. Um, and people sometimes get worried that uh, the growth won't be there. The reality is globally and in Australia, there's only two mediums that are growing. That's digital and uh, and, and out of home. Uh, they're the two mediums that are growing in revenue. Um, and uh, the reality is we're not being disrupted by the other choices that viewers now have um, in how they can consume other media. And that's that is playing into our hands. We're mm. becoming what we call unmissable and much, very much uh, more important to clients and their return on investment profiles. We we deliver strong return on investments that's proven by independent organisations for clients. Um, and I think um, sometimes investors get it, sometimes they don't, sometimes they get worried. Um, but, you know, I've stopped uh, thinking about the share market. I will think about it. If we get the business right, the share market will follow. Yep. So uh, here's a, a question from a, an amateur in this space, namely me. Is the advertising on a mobile phone out of home or in home? Very good question. Um, I suppose we, we categorise it in its own sector really as a mobile digital, mm. um, but there's a strong connection between the two. Um, you know, in the old days, if you saw an ad, you couldn't have responded to that immediately. Well, of course, now with a mobile phone, you can. Uh, Instagram um, did a, 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 a review globally and found that um, of all media, uh, out of home is the most media where people unrelated to the industry take photos and share things they've seen uh, uh, on billboards or shopping centre signs or wh- wherever it may be. In fact, one in four of Instagram, these are their statistics, one in four of Instagram shareable pictures is in fact of out of home. Yeah, and, and so from from your point of view then, um, is what you you put through the internet that ends up on mobile phones, is this a, an important part of revenue growth for you? Well, it's the synergy we bring to, to mobile. If you think about mobile, what it really means is advertisers are understanding um, where you are via, via location. And our strength is we're a location-based media. So you can can actually match the two behaviours of how you move around and wh- what you do, um, and that actually leads to what is served to people. You know, Facebook just did a major study in Europe which showed that if you combine a social post on Facebook and uh, without a home, you get the strongest ROI of any combination of media that would be used with Facebook. So again, it's that combination of how we are consuming mobile when we're uh, out of home um, and that combination of how uh, location data and where you are, what you are, tends to be able to be matched. They know we're in a shopping centre. They know you go to a particular shopping centre. They know you walk into a particular store. They know that. They may they can serve you an ad. We know that you're in a shopping centre, so naturally the advertisers are buying an ad in that shopping centre to reach people who, who may be consumed differently on, the, on mobile. Mm. Now, while you're talking, I was listening unbelievably intently, Brendan, because I respect every word you say. 
but being a person who can multitask, I looked up your share price over the last year and it hasn't gone in the right direction, but I look at over five years, it's gone in a fantastic direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm pondering why the last 12 months or so has been tough. And my first question is, we know retail struggled over the last year or so, so and so is the economy. How important is the retail sector and the economy for the performance of own media? I suppose the economy more more in a, in a general sense is the important factor. Consumer confidence, there's no doubt any any advertising expenditure um, is a reflection of consumer confidence. If there's consumer confidence down and businesses, probably wrongly, um, think they need to save some money quickly, then advertising is one of the first things they save to. Of course, there's plenty of data to prove that's not a very smart strategy and those that do the opposite generally grow through uh, negative negative periods. Um, so if you look at share prices across all media companies, when there's nervousness around consumer confidence, there's nervousness around ad spend, and there's no doubt that uh, July and August in this year were significantly lower ad spend months uh, compared to not only the previous year, but actually they were lower than the spends during the GFC. So clearly there was a, is a, is a strong consumer confidence parameter happening, and I think the share price reacts short-term to those levels, what we historically see as soon as there's more confidence coming back, that generally the share price of media companies grows again. Okay, so so that's one one aspect. What about are there new rivals in the market making your life uh, tougher? No, I think the the we had a uh, uh, we had a, uh, uh, a downgrade that we provided to the market on our full year results. We're a calendar year company. Mm. Um, uh, that clearly has, has, a, has an impact, and that was a reflection of the volume of revenue in the media market, not not necessarily growth. Mm. Uh, long-term structural growth out of home is growing every year. It's still on track to go from 6 to 10% of the media pie, um, and that is obviously a, a, a big goal of all the investment that's being made in the business. Uh, there's been consolidation in the market. We've consolidated with the acquisition of Adshell, uh, which is the street furniture and railway business and JC Co consolidated with the acquisition of APN Outdoor. So, um, you know, and what we've seen in markets, the consolidation uh, actually helps the growth of the industry, both our own and the players uh, that are part of that, that consolidation um, because we are able to invest in uh, some big, pretty big rocks like data and, um, and actually drive um, greater results for clients quicker, and that generally leads to a faster uptake in the, in the medium term. Okay, so looking down the, the track, Brendan, what do you think are going to be the, the big wins for O-Media? Well, firstly, it starts with um, um, structurally we're in a very strong position. Our, our audiences aren't declining. As you said, you know, we are in a visible position. The data and proof of our performance by independent organisations as clients spend more money with us it's not surprising that they get bigger and larger results. So if you're selling more for clients, generally they will buy you. If your eyeballs aren't dropping away, you have a stronger role in the one plus reach, which drives success. There's a stronger understanding globally between uh, what they call bottom of the funnel and top of the funnel. And you know, bottom of the funnel would be search, et cetera. Top of the funnel would be mainstream advertising. And we'll see some rebalancing of probably some spends that have been a little bit too strong to the bottom of the funnel. Uh, and that will again have a have a major impact. But importantly for us, 
um, is the investments we've been making in in what we call smart reach, smart data, um, where we we have got access to over um, uh, 12, 13 billion, uh, million, sorry, of Australians' um, purchase uh, behaviours, uh, de-anonymised, obviously, and privacy compliant. Um, but what it does allow us to do now is to build uh, at location a, 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 an approach for advertisers to reach more of what they call category buyer. The old advertising was reach and frequency based on demographics. What's been proven here and globally, if you can get more detailed category buyers and understand, for example, understand who actually are the dog food buyers and where do they live, um, then you sell more product. And by understanding what we call one to better many, rather than being just seen as a one to many medium, if we can understand different geographies, different locations that have better reach to more of the right category buyers, then we sell more product for clients. They spend more money with you. And given our audiences aren't in decline and we have new technologies that assist them to get greater responses, then we generally will should grow share to that 10% of the media pie. Okay. And one last thing, the concern. What, what is the one concern out there that you hope doesn't come down the pike? <laughs> well, I think, like everyone, it's macroeconomics. I think we'd love to see, you know, I'd love to see, you know, Australia really is fundamentally in a fairly good position, but there's a lot of negativity, mm. um, whether it be global negativity or domestic negativity. Um, and I think if we could... Uh, see positive spending. I think we do need to see wages growth um, and how we get to that is, is something that I think governments have got to try and uh, work with business to, to, to solve um, because I think the more money in people's pockets, uh, the more they can go and spend and the more they spend generally makes the whole economy tick a lot better. Brendan Cook, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. That was Brendan Cook, the CEO of O Media. Well, are you investing for income but finding it difficult with the current low, low interest rates? Join us at the Switzer Income Conference, a masterclass in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, and hear from some of Australia's finest investment minds. On the day, they'll tell you how they're investing for income and show you how to navigate Dr. Phil's next interest rate decision. To purchase tickets, head to www.switzerevents.com.au. We'll see you there. Well, my next guest is Will Davison, who's the CEO of PowerWrap. PowerWrap is a listed company, and it's involved in providing a platform for investors. It's uh, recently listed, and it's a company, I guess, of the future. Will Davison, thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. So, a great name, PowerWrap. Why don't you explain to my listeners what PowerWrap does? Sure. Uh, so PowerApp, we're a, an investment wrap platform, uh, and by that we manage and administer investment portfolios on behalf of wealth managers, advisors, and financial planners. So we have about, well, at the moment, we've got 8.3 billion under administration, and we just recently listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Okay. Can self-managed super fund people access PowerApp? Uh, they sure can. Probably about 60% of our existing customers of that $8.3 billion are self-managed super funds. So we have super accounts, we have investment accounts, and most of the investment accounts tend to be self-managed super funds. But yeah. they will, they'll tend to go via an advisor. Yeah. So their advisor could be a financial planner or a wealth manager. Yeah. So basically, 
you don't have to go by via an advisor to use power wrap, but often that's the case. Yeah, that's right. So most of most of our clients are being used by B two B. So uh, advice firms who are coming to us who need their whole client base administered. We become like the the middle office of an investment bank working for that advice firm. Okay. Well, a lot of people listening still wouldn't understand what a wrap does, a platform. Tell us exactly the services you provide for someone who's doing business with you. Sure. So we provide full access to the broadest range of investment options. Uh, And by that, we mean it has all of the equities, so domestic and international equities. We give access to all of the managed fund products. So there are about 1,100 PDF-based products. And there, when PowerApp is different, is we go a little bit further in the managed fund area and we actually provide access to alternative asset categories that are via managed funds. So that could be hedge funds or infrastructure funds or technology funds or mezzanine debt. Those are a little bit different to what every other platform provides. And that is just the, the outworking of our customer base are a little bit more sophisticated than the normal RAP platform. And they have a demand for investment product that, that is a bit different. And that, that's really what sets PowerApp apart. And, and what does someone pay to, to um, use your services? They just have, We have a standard administration fee and it's fairly consistent across the industry. Um, that perhaps someone pays to be on there called an admin fee and then just standard transactional fees. But obviously because we're such large scale and we're dealing with with firms, uh, we give them what you would call institutional-based pricing to come in. Okay. So um, I guess a lot of people would you know, basically like to uh, understand what is your competitive advantage compared to your rivals? Yeah, I think it's the, the asset types that I talked about, so the alternative investments, but it's the open architecture nature of what we do. And what that means is, for the 10 years that we've been in operation, our advisors come to us and say that they want to put their clients into a certain type of product. So we're unconstrained versus all of the bank-owned platforms obviously have constrained their approved product list. And that that just means that we're, we're not vertically aligned. So the whole Royal Commission was all around the vertical alignment of advisor platform and product whereas PowerApp is, is unconstrained by that. So that's a big advantage in that for the end investor, they get the broadest range of possible investments by coming by PowerApp. Has the Royal Commission been good for your business bottom line? Uh, it, it has. So what it means is that uh, probably historically there was over 10,000 uh, financial advisors and wealth managers who were employed by the, the large institutions and they were, they were restrained to use those products. What's happened after the Royal Commission is they've realised that their business, being their wealth advice business, would be better outside of that, that bank alignment. And so they're starting to move. And so there's a, a large number of advisors leaving the large institutions. And so they come and they plug into PowerApp for all those services instead of the investment banks or, or the private banks. Okay, so... I guess the bottom line is you're a listed company now. 
Um, how's your share price been going? Yes, yeah, so we listed in May a very successful process. We um, we had a, you know we're well oversubscribed during that process. Uh, we just did our most recent results announcement, um, and that was for the end of financial year results. So we had to compare to the prospectus, and we did well. Um, it hasn't moved the dial on the share price at the moment. I think people are looking much more to the in the longer term with regard to Power App in two to three years um, that will be up in the in the realms of NetWealth and Hub, for example, the other non-aligned platforms. Uh, but results-wise, we were we were very happy to announce that we were ahead of um, funds under administration significantly. We were ahead of revenue and we also did a million better on the bottom line. So the, the short-term results were positive. And I guess it's still very early days post-Royal Commission, you would be expecting it to be uh, a, a gradual uh, uh, opportunity to put your wares on show to advisors who may well be leaving some of the, the financial institutions who they used to work for. Yeah, absolutely. So what we've recognised that there's a number of um, barriers in the way of them setting up their own business. So what we've done is we've built an incubator that we've called Ticker, and really it's, it's a we work for wealth managers. So they can leave an investment bank or a private bank and they can plug into our incubator and get all of the services, all the platform clearing and execution. Um, they can get all of the uh, back-end services being licensing and compliance that they would have got. So we're just making it as simple as they can for, for them to start their own business. And so that is a bit of an education process is that we have to um, have a lot of meetings with all those advisors to teach them about running and, and incubating, starting their own business. So, um, Will, how long have you been with PowerWrap? Uh, just on a year and a half now, so January 2018. And so what's it been like for the founders, the, the journey from you know, starting obviously small to being listed? What's the journey been like and what have been the big lessons, do you think, for those founders? Yeah, I think what happened is originally the business was around for a long time, but then effectively pivoted when we, we partnered with a very large group who were leaving UBS. Um, and as of formulating that business, we, we really decided and became uh, the high net worth offering for Australia. So we recognised there were a number of other offerings around, but they were very much focused on the retail financial planning network and servicing mum and dad investors with superannuation accounts. So their average account size was probably about $200,000. We we really focused into that high net worth space about four or five years ago. And as a result, our average account size is $1.5 million. Mm. Uh, and so it has, we have had a lot of shareholders over the time. So we, current, we had about 300 before IPOing. We're now at 450. So we've always operated in a similar fashion because it's a public unlisted to to a listed environment. So it hasn't been a massive change from the governance and protocol. We've been very good at that, but but more so in operating in this public environment, uh, the the pressure has been on about you know the announcements that we're able to make. So that has all been you know a very positive process so mm. far. And so if you had to put down and look at the two innovations you mentioned, namely bringing on a partner 
uh, and innovating to uh, go after high net worth um, potential clients, which one do you think had the biggest impact on the business's bottom line? I, I think the, the asset types is the most important. So the big innovation is, is bringing on new interesting investment products yeah. And again, it comes back to what's important to the end investor. They just want the best investment product with the best results. Uh, and, the, and the innovation we've had to do to do that is we're building a full technology platform to administer those alternative assets, a very complicated asset class. And so our innovation is how do you order all of those assets? How do you manage them? And, and how do you make sure that it's a frictionless process? Will, thanks for joining us on the show. Great. Thanks very much for your time, Peter. Well, that was Will Davidson. And if you want to know more about, I guess, investing and doing things like getting rich, which I presume is better than getting poor, I'd recommend you have a look at my new book. It's called Join the Rich Club. And uh, it, it kind of cashes in on the wonderful quote from Sophie Tucker, the comedian, who once said, I've been rich, I've been poor, Rich is better. If you want to get the book, it's at switzerstore.com.au and the price is $24.95 and it's the cheapest investment in you getting rich. Well, my next guest is David Hammond from Hammond Holdings, but most of you out there have never heard of David that I should have, uh, and the wonderful Hammond family and the Hammond Holdings. But you certainly know, most of you would know the business that they became famous for, namely Scenic World in the Blue Mountains. So anyone who's been to the Blue Mountains, if you haven't been on some of the rides um, or bought a mountain devil as I did as a child before even uh, David was even born, uh, this is a very famous business. And last time I spoke to um, David, you were up there as one of the biggest tourism destinations in Australia, is that right, or yeah. New South Wales? No, in Australia we're the most visited privately owned tourist attraction in the country, mm. so Scenic World has over 1.1 million visitors a year. Yeah, that is staggering. And, uh, and so was it your family that actually started Scenic World? Uh, not quite. So yeah. it was originally a coal mine. So a guy called John Britty North went mining okay. there. Um, he got a lease or a grant from the government, a land grant from the government to mine there. And he started mining there in about 1880. Mm -hmm. So it was a handy spot for a coal mine because instead of having to dig a big hole to get down to the coal seam, they just went down the side of the mountain and just could go straight in. Oh, really? So um, the seam was, in a sense, revealed that you could see it amongst the... The, the rock um, strata. Yep, so yeah. you can see it. So that, that entrance to that mine is still there at the bottom of Scenic World and they yeah. just happened to build a very uh, steep funicular steam-powered train in those days to yeah. get down there. And, yeah, so they mined on and off there um, until uh, around until the end of World War II right. and then my grandfather uh, was running a transport business mm -hmm. and uh, an electrical business at the time up in the mountains. He was, he was a real entrepreneur. He was a real entrepreneur. And yep. so he was there collecting coal to take up to the power station in the Blue Mountains then, which was at the Carrington and Katoomba at the back of the hotel Is that there. why there's that massive chimney exactly. there? Exactly. I've often wondered, like, 
What kind of a hotel needs a chimney no, of that it, size? Yeah, because it was the power station for the for yeah. the whole of, for the whole of the Upper Blue Mountains. Yeah. And yeah, so he's there in 1945 collecting coal, and three American soldiers arrive on a jeep and say, "We're here to ride the steep train." And Harry has to tell them, "I'm very sorry, but it only runs on the weekends." So the light bulb goes off for for my mm. grandpa though, and he uh, he takes the lease and eventually buys the lease out and starts the coal mining. Yep, and starts yeah. running. Uh, starts running it as a tourist attraction every day and is famously quoted as saying uh, to his sister Isabel uh, that we might make a tenner a week out of this. Yeah, so I'm very lucky. So 73 years my family have uh, have owned Scenic World 4 and, yeah, I'm a third-generation family business person and my sister and I ran it for a long time together, about 10 years together. But, but David, I I go there. I I actually have a place in Blackheath, Mm. so I know the area pretty well. Um, but you guys as a family, you've invested a lot of money because it used to be basically like a, a pretty nice sort of big cafeteria where you yep. sold a whole lot of stuff. You could go on the, the cable car, mm-hmm. what you got, Sky, the, the sky, Skyway, yeah, Skyway, Skyway, and the Scenic Railway, the, yep. the famous things that you know kids and families would, would go on. But you've invested a lot of money. Can you can you give us a number how much you've yeah, invested? Yeah, so my Dad started really redeveloping it in 1996 when he uh, he pulled it all apart and redid the building, um, put in the cableway that goes down into the valley. So you had two accesses mm. into the valley, the railway and the cableway. Mm. They built a boardwalk down in the rainforest of 2.2 kilometres, mm. um, built a new car park and... Yeah, so then he finished that first phase they re- and then they redid the Skyway. They finished that in 2004. Mm. And then my sister and I redeveloped the Scenic Railway in 2013. And we just finished in the last two years upgrading the Skyway cabin to make it bigger and have Wi-Fi and the cableway the same. So if you add up all of that into the last 20 years... Uh, we spent over ninety million dollars yeah. tricking it out. Oh yeah. yeah, that's a big a big spend. But I guess the, the the best part of a big spend in a business like yours is you've got pretty consistent cash flow, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, cash flow is good there. Mm. Um, obviously, you have the you know the people arrive and uh, you know they, yeah. they, they spend. They spend, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's consistent, yeah. uh, which is which makes your life quite a bit easier. Has there ever been a period where sales actually to customers actually fell very noticeably because of some external event, you know, like a GFC or or whatever? Definitely. So you get uh, GFC wasn't so bad, Mm. um, but certainly September 11, that really... that really knocked it around. A lot of international travellers just didn't it, travel. It just stopped. Yeah, yeah. international travel just stopped. Um, the SARS virus as mm. well, um, when that happened, that sort of that knocked a hole in it because mm. a lot of people transiting, if you're coming from Europe, especially mm. you go through yeah, that part Asia. of the world to mm. get to here. Mm. So that certainly slowed it down. And, yeah, the most memorable one for me was uh, the bushfires that were in uh, October of 2013. So mm. my sister and I had finished redeveloping the scenic railway <laughs> and opened that uh, in the start of April there. And so that was only sort of six months after that. And yeah, we watched uh, visitation drop off fairly mm. dramatically but it there. It comes back quickly, doesn't it? 
Oh, it's about, it depends what it is. The oh. bushfires took sort of six yeah, months to recover from. Yeah. Um, GFC was not so bad because mm. there was a sort of shift out. People travelled overseas left, so they mm. sort of staycationed yep. a bit more. Yep, yep. Um, so you pick up a bit more domestic. Um, yep. Yeah, but it's it's steadily increased from, yeah, when we when we did the scenic railway. Uh, there in 2013, we were at about 835,000 passengers. Mm. And mm. yeah, last year we were... 1.136, I think. Mm. Apart from your own marketing, do you get assistance from the government marketing externally as, like, if you come to Australia, here are one of, here's one of the, the great things you can see, or is it all your own marketing? Um, no, you certainly have Tourism Australia and, and Destination New South Wales advertising overseas, and yeah. they're, especially Tourism Australia, their idea is just to get people to come yeah. to Australia and yeah but there's so then it's all our, really our own our own marketing that actually yeah. gets them to there but we do a lot uh, with sales as well mm. so for the group tour market that's mm. that's a lot more sales based than advertising based yeah so, yeah. yeah and I guess you, if you get the bus tour groups on side that's unbelievably uh, valuable isn't it yeah that's that's really helpful and that really creates the sort of that kind of base load of passengers yeah. that you sort of get every day. Uh, and it's important to be in those markets um, very, very early. So, you know, with, especially with, you know, Korea was a great example. We have been in the Korean market for a very long time. And there was at one point there, we were getting eight out of every 10 Korean people that landed in Sydney were visiting Scenic mm. World. Yeah. So it's not quite that high number now, mm. but yeah, we're seeing those markets now move mm. into more emerging markets. So mm. we're starting to see more Vietnamese people, more Indonesian mm. people, and they'll be the next sort of big wave that yeah. that comes. Now, I do want to talk about your latest innovation because you've you basically got the bridge climb business, which is extraordinary. But before we get move out of the mountains, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, we're in my place in Blackheath, mm. a lot of um, Asians, they love the seasons. They love taking photographs of the trees in autumn and all that sort of stuff. Have you worked out the reason why they're fascinated? Uh, my, in my head, I think a lot of them come from big cities that live in apartments. And so they love the aspect, the open space nature mm. of Australia. Is that a fair argument, do you think? I'd say so, yeah. yeah. I, I never... Uh, you never surveyed I, them? I've maybe. never surveyed them myself, yeah. no. Um, but, yeah, they certainly do have that, that fascination with those, with especially with that particular street in Blackheath. I know exact one you're referring to. Yeah, uh, yeah but they, they're very interested in the in the nature and yeah it's amazing when you stand and you you look out over from the skyway you look out over that national park there that's huge national park it's it's bigger than the size of belgium i'm told mm. um yeah so it's just that that big open space that you don't often get especially like you've said in in big cities you don't get that so no, yeah no. So now i wrote stories about paul cave when he first started bridge climb um, and now You've taken possession of it. So tell us how that happened. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a long process. It was, uh, it was a bit more than a year we were involved in that. Um, I'd been on sabbatical in Spain. I had a year off, off work to mm. hang out with my kids in, and wife down in Granada in mm. southern Spain yep. and got back from that. And, yeah, we were a couple of weeks away from putting in our initial um, expression of interest. Uh, we made it through that stage into the, the RFP stage. And RFP? Which was a, a, RFP a request for, for proposal okay. um, from, the, from RMS. Yep. 
And yeah, so then we worked on that all through December and January and sort of half of February. Uh, yeah, so that was that was a lot of work. Yeah, so so you, you had to sort of basically um, get the box ticked from the government to, ha to get the lease for 20 years, is that right? Well, it was a competitive tender process. Okay. So uh, the, at the ROI stage, we were with 13 other um, people, I think, yeah. 13 other companies. And then we made it through to that next stage and, yeah, I think there were four or five that were in that process. Yeah. yeah, and so I, you know, we we spent all our time putting putting that document together. So I think at one stage I had 19 contractors on the go, mm. plus um, Scenic World helping. And yes, yeah, so we submitted that document, and yeah, then we, we you know, we had a bunch of follow up yeah. questions, which was good. And yeah, we we got down into and did did the original yeah, yeah. like you know the Paul Cave and his company did they apply as well? Yep. Okay, yep. so they missed out, but then you, you wanted to buy, I guess, their intellectual property that goes with the business called Bridge Climb. Yeah, so we, we made it through. We were awarded the concession from, from RMS and the state government, and then we entered into yeah separate set of negotiations to acquire Otto Holdings, which is the company... Um, that ran Bridge Climb, and mm. like you say, exactly to acquire you know, their procedures and their and the name and and mm. all that sort of stuff that was held in <clears throat> Otto. Because in many ways, um, that has been the, apart from the, the beautiful nature of the bridge, the fact that the systems are so good mm. was something that staggered me. That uh, they really, I know Paul once said to me. Um, one of his main jobs is to look at the surveys to find out what they can do to improve the business but the complaints are really small so I can't learn much from them at the moment no, no, yeah that's true um, you know that's uh, they do they provide a very very good um, or they, they did and they yeah. still do provide a very good customer experience yeah, um, yeah it's it's a fantastic experience uh, I've been lucky enough to do it a few times yeah. uh, recently yeah. and yeah it's really it's really cool so what have you taken over full-blown now or you're still in, a, yes. in your own process yeah no so we took over um, it was like a sort of a hard changeover mm. I guess um, on the 1st of October last year mm. so this day last year was uh, it was pretty anxious day for us we were busy making sure that we had everything we needed to have sorted out for yeah. the next day well, you're used to being a, a top dog in local tourism. How does Bridge Climb compare with other equivalent destinations worldwide? Uh, I think it's a unique it's a unique attraction. So I'm lucky because I already own another unique attraction up at Scenic World. Mm. So mm. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting and and to yeah look into the future and be able to link. Uh, the pair of them together in combination with the Sydney Zoo that we're Cornerstone investors in out in Blacktown as well is yeah. uh, is quite an exciting prospect for us. And yeah, my sister Anthea is also on the board of the Western Sydney Airport Corporation. And so that uh, mm. that's going to be pretty exciting when they open that airport out mm. there uh, in 2026, I think it is. I, I'm, I'm sure some smarties have tried to encourage you to list your company. Have they tried that and have you thought about and do you think you ever would? Uh, yeah, every now and then you get somebody rolls around who, who either wants you to list it or mm. your private equity are trying to buy you or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but no, we've taken very much a, a family business approach to that yeah. and, um, you know, we 
believe that we're custodians of this business for our future generations. I think there's 13 in, uh, in generation four that sits underneath me. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it, it helps change the way you make your business decisions as well too, because we realise that we have to justify to these kids one day why we did X or Y. So you make more long-term um, strategic decisions mm. and very uh, you try to make very sustainable and decisions around the way you, you know, treat staff or treat the environment or, or you know, all those sorts of things. Mm. So it's, uh, it, it's been really good and it's, a love, it's actually a really nice way to, to yeah. do business. Yeah. And you, you're a member of Family Business Australia. Is that going to help you give the explanation why you might eventually select one member of fourth generation to run the show and the other 12 say, hey, why didn't we get the gig? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it certainly does help. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really useful people and I've met some wonderful people through, uh, through Family Business Australia. Yeah. Uh, it certainly helped us a lot with our succession planning. Um, you know, so when we transitioned from my dad to, to my sister and I mm. uh, running Scenic World, but also it's helped us put in a lot of important structures um, that, are, that we found really helpful in our family business. So we actually have a family constitution which governs all the rules around how you know your fourth generation person might be selected to run the business, but also about how the family can interact with the business, and it also gives us a, a family council as well. And so that is a you know it's all my sisters. I've got four sisters yeah. um, and my parents, and it allows everybody there to interact with the business in a in a formal sort of environment and mm. sort out all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, you don't have to do all of that at the Christmas table after everyone's had a bunch of drinks. You yeah. get a, a proper uh, facilitator and you do it all that way. And uh, we found that very, very effective way of managing the family and the business. Okay, well, the, the family has done a great job and uh, I think you, you and your sister are continuing it. Thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure, thank you. And that was David Hammond from Scenic World and his company is called Hammond Holdings, but... Scenic World is the one we all know, and uh, how about them getting bridge climb? What a story. A family business that really can sh you know, show a lot of public companies how to, to really do business properly. And uh, before I go, let me remind you, we've been going out on Mondays for quite some time, but my editorial committee have twisted my arm. They want to go out on Wednesdays, so from this week onwards... It will be, or I guess next week onwards, we will be going out on Wednesday. So if you come looking for us on Monday, we won't be there, but we'll have a great show on Wednesdays. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.